Do you believe the Bible? What a simple song. A question was raised of saying, oh, that is such a simple song, we can't use that for a special. Oh, those are the best specialist songs. The simple songs, how true it is. Now, we think of that as a children's song where we sing these basic truths. That song is filled with power because it is a declaration of belief in truth. It's what we believe, and what we believe will change our lives. As we began last week in just a brief overview of our series that we're beginning on the topic of we believe as we study through our church's statement of faith and look through each of the different doctrines that we profess to believe. And as members of this church, you have affirmed that you do believe those basic doctrines. But I am deeply burdened for many of our children who are coming up that they not just hear the song of we believe and they not just understand mom and dad believe, but that they join the we believe and not just in, just in summary, but in truly understanding what they believe. And also there are those who have just been exposed to what the Bible is and what the Bible says, and it is so important that they too understand what they believe and what we believe. And I'll assure you that even for myself, as I review these doctrines, I am encouraged and I am strengthened in the perspective that I have. Um, you'll notice as we go through the study that there's certain parts of my doctrinal statement that I wrote um, some years ago in specific preparation for my ordination. And um, you'll notice in the context of things that even I have taken and revised that. You'll see little hints of that um, in the attempt to be clearer, to be clearer and to deal with different things that have arisen um, in our world that have to be addressed. Um, there's a lot of times where the simple song, we believe the Bible, we believe the Bible is the word of God was sufficient. Um, but as the world has changed and also as there have been those who have sought to creep in unawares and to lead astray, we have to go beyond and be very specific in being clear in outlining what we believe and what we don't believe and the specifics of it. And um, as time goes by, to be clear about what we believe in understanding the scriptures. There's a tool I'd like to share with you. We're, we'll be using our statement of faith, and in a moment here, the men will come, but I'd like to overview what they will be distributing first. Um, the first thing is, is just a simple overview um, and copy of our church's statement of faith. I've reformatted this in just a little booklet, just one piece of paper folded in half. It all fits on this, so that it's something that you can carry in your Bible so that in the coming weeks where you may forget your notes or details, this is something that you have there and you can carry in your Bible. I printed um, about 100 of them, so I'm gonna, I told them pass them out, um, just one per family for now, but if this is something you'd like to have in your Bible to carry, they'll put the rest back there at the Welcome Center and you can pick that up after the service. The other handout that they have is the beginning of a booklet that we will be going through and I am putting together for the series that we're beginning entitled, We Believe. And these are the first few pages of it that will be over and detailing 
the part of the series regarding the Bible that we'll be dealing with today. So these are the two things. We'll share one of these, one per household, and then this would be um, for all those who are, um, are readers and writers. Um, so all, all you young, young kids, um, don't raise your hand, don't feel left out. Um, but if you do do want one and they miss you, we can, we can certainly get more. So if you'd come and um, distribute these things, and as they do that and as you begin to get it, I'd like to go a little bit further as to how I'd like for you to use this study guide. Um, there's two parts of this. Um, the first is just a summary of our church's statement of faith and a few details in how that's, how that's dealt with. And then... Um, uh, it's a worksheet, and this worksheet we're not going to go through here this morning. This worksheet is designed for you um, to do on your own or as a family in follow-up to help you to reinforce the doctrines um, of, that we're covering here this morning. And then you'll see on this document, on page four, I've given a, a more exhaustive doctrinal statement. So our church's statement regarding the Bible is just a few phrases. Uh, it's really a compound sentence, it could be. It's, it's a very simple, very basic um, statement. And then what is here is a more exhaustive, more detail. And this is coming from uh, my doctrinal statement, and it's summary in more detail. And this is really where we're going to spend a lot of our time here this morning is going through the more detail of this. So what you've received here in this handout is the first few pages of a booklet in the series, We Believe, and the pages regarding the Bible. So we'll be looking here at our statement of faith and reviewing that. There's a worksheet for you to do, to take home and to do, because I'll share with you the reason I've included a, a worksheet and not just a study guide is because so often when you're sitting in this context and you're hearing a message, there's a lot of things that you may get and be helped by. But when it comes to doctrine, especially when it comes to the aspect of the topic we're dealing with, which is basically we believe, we believe the purpose of this study is not so that you know what Fellowship Baptist Church believes. The goal of this is so that you know what you believe. And having a worksheet is an opportunity of a way of guiding you to help you specifically look up for you to do what actually as a Christian you're commanded to do, to study, to show thyself approved, a workman that needs not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. You have the word of truth, and do you divide it, meaning do you interpret it, cutting it straight, do you understand it? Do, what do you believe? And have you studied it? And so the worksheet here is there for you to, and to help you in that goal. I know for myself, I have heard many lectures, I've heard many sermons, and many times the doctrines and the truths of Scripture did not become my own and did not lodge in my heart until I personally invested the effort and the work to search the scriptures, to study the scriptures, and to really, truly understand them. So the worksheet is there to be a tool for you in this. So if you would, please, um, I know you have, I know they, I saw them passing out. I'd like for as many of these to be passed out. 
as possible. Did we get all of these passed out or just one per family? Okay, we did get, okay, okay. You guys, I just one up here. Could you, do you have any extras of these? Could you come through again and if you'd like one, get his attention and we'll go through them until we're gone on these here because there's some parts here that will be helpful for us to be able to follow along on the same page. Thank you, Zachary. Thank you, Mr. Dinsmore. I'd like to also thank um, Elijah. He was my helper yesterday. Um, as if you've been here throughout the day, you'll notice there's a lot of printing today. And, um, and he was my diligent helper in helping print, fold, collate, staple, punch, all those fun details. I'm very thankful for that. Would you take your Bibles and turn with me to 2 Timothy 3.16? 2 Timothy 3.16. We believe the Bible. What do we believe regarding the Bible? 2 Timothy 3, verse 16 and 17 is a key passage. It is a foundational passage to Christianity. 2 Timothy 3.16 declares this, all scripture is given by the inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. This, these two verses declare for us the basics of our belief regarding this book that we hold in our hands. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. I begin with this verse before jumping to our statement of faith. The statement of faith is simply man's words to seek in a, a, a feeble way to summarize what the Bible teaches. Here you can see this could be our statement of faith. But look with me here on page two of uh, the handout I've given to you at where it shows and lists our statement of faith. And would you read it with me together? Our statement of faith, the Bible. Read with me. We believe the Bible containing the old and the New Testaments to be the verbally inspired Word of God, inerrant in its original languages, and that it is the sole authority for personal faith and conduct. So we believe the Bible. We believe the Bible, to go to the end of this statement, is the sole authority for personal faith and conduct. That's what's described here in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. The Bible is profitable for doctrine, that is, teaching. It is profitable for reproof, that is, instructing us when we have gone astray, when we are wrong. Correction shows us the right way, as well as instruction in righteousness. These are things that the Bible is for all of our personal faith and conduct. It is about our entire lives. 
Last week, we talked about the fact that doctrine is not just something that we ascribe to or something that we teach. Doctrine is something that should change our lives. And I'll be perfectly candid. Oftentimes, the reason why Christian lives are not changed is because their view of God's Word is too low. Their view of God's Word is too low. It's not enough to people to say, God said. You show them from Scripture. God said. Does it change your life? If it doesn't, then your view of Scripture is too low. That's the reason why this is the core and the first of these doctrines, because all that we know of Christian life, of doctrine, and of what we believe, and of how we conduct our lives ought to be grounded in this book. And so often, we do not value this as profitable. We do not see this as profitable. So often, we speak of the fact that we need to walk by faith. Well, how's that and what's that have to do with the Bible? We talk about it, walk by faith, walk by faith. This morning in Bible hour, we learned about Daniel, and we learned about Daniel's faith, and we learned that he was a man of faith. Well, what does that mean? Well, faith at its core is to have faith to believe in God, who he is in his character, and to believe what he has revealed to us, both about the world, about history, and about himself. Our faith, this book, reveals to us what we believe. Let me tell you, if you have ideas or concepts about life, philosophies of life, what's going on in the world, and it's not based or filtered through the truth of this book, you will be led astray. You will be led astray. Every aspect of our faith and conduct ultimately should come back to this book. This is the sole authority. We believe the Bible, containing the Old and New Testaments, to be verbally inspired word of God. What does it mean they're verbally inspired? Now, you heard in the children's song, you have a very simple doctrinal statement. We believe the Bible. We believe the Bible. We believe the Bible is the Word of God. Why is that statement not sufficient? Well, it is sufficient, but why does it need qualifiers? Why does it need qualifiers such as the word verbally and such as the word inspired? Well, because throughout history, different people have come in, some very boldly and some very slyly, to redefine the meaning of word of God. And so some have come along in the past and said, well, the Bible, it is the word of God. It contains the word of God. Oh, it is the word of God. It has concepts that were inspired by God. And by inspired, they mean more like um, Shakespearean inspired rather than what inspired really means. And so we have had to be clarified, had to clarify what these words mean, what these 
terms mean and what we mean by this. And so we've added different words to help to understand and to clarify what we mean when we say we believe the Bible is the Word of God. And there's two words here in our statement of faith. One is verbally and one is inspired. When we use the word verbally, we are speaking that God inspired His Word word by word, the specific word. The words themselves are inspired by God. It's not just a thought or a concept that was inspired and then men just wrote it down. But no, the very words that were written down are the words of God. And so when we say that the word of God is verbally inspired, that is what we are saying word by word, the very words. Now, God did use human men to write his words. And it's interesting because some would say, well, this can't be true because we find personalities and we find variants of style throughout the scriptures. And that's exactly true. We do. And the omniscient, all-knowing, and all-powerful God in writing his word was able to guide and use these men in their personalities, in their educational background and vocabulary to write and even sound of their style. But the very words of God are inspired. And what does inspired mean? Inspired means God breathed. That's the literal meaning of the word inspired. God breathed. What's that mean? Well, think of when you speak. Can you speak without breath? No, you can't. You may be able to mouth words, but you cannot speak without breath. And so the concept of inspiration is specifically God breathed, which by extension and application is, is that they are the very words of his mouth. They are his words. It's described over in 2 Peter. You'll see here in our statement of faith, we have two references listed, and this is only just a little sampling of the many references we could use. But 2 Peter chapter 1 tells us actually a little more detail of how that was done. And so if we look, turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 1 and look with me at verse 21, where it says this, For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Here we have a declaration. The Word of God is not man's words. It's not man's philosophies. It's not man's opinions. This is uh, done by the will of God, and it is when holy men, men set apart of God, spake, and by extension also wrote, when they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Well, as we're going to learn in our doctrine of, of God, we're going to find that the Holy Ghost is the Holy Spirit who is God, the Spirit of God. And the Spirit of God and the word and concept of Spirit also is interesting because it's tied to the idea of wind, of breath. Here we see the, the Scriptures are inspired. God breathed. And here we see that men were moved by the Spirit of God, and the word here, moved, carries the idea of the way that a ship is moved forward in the wind, and this is how inspiration took place. 
men of God, holy men who had been set apart by God, he inspired. He, he breathed to them his words, moving through his Holy Spirit that they record his very words. And so the Bible that we have is verbally, that is word for word, word by word, the very words inspired, God breathed, God spoke, record that we have. It's incredible. That's why it's reliable for us. That's why it can be our sole authority. It's not about what men think. This is what God thinks and has said. If we look again at our statement, we believe the Bible containing the Old and New Testaments to be verbally inspired word of God, inerrant in its original languages. What does the word inerrant mean? Well, it means that it does not have any errors. It does not have any errors. And what are the original languages? Well, originally, when God moved, the Holy Spirit of God moved men to write his word, it was not in English. It was in Hebrew for much of the Old Testament, Aramaic for both Old Testament. There's debate into how much of the New Testament may have been originally in Aramaic, but then Greek. We have Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. And these are the original languages in which God, God breathed, God inspired the very words of these men to write for us. We come throughout the ages, and this is the reason why it's so important that when we are seeking to make translations, and oh, we desperately need translations. We need translations to be able to be understood by mankind all across the world, that we go back to the original language because there's significance in that. God chose specific words and to understand what those words were in the original language as we seek feebly sometimes to translate it into our language. Now, when I say feebly, I don't want you to feel in some way that you do not have a good translation. Because though this translation is not inspired, your translations God has worked in in different ways. You do have to be careful because men have taken their own biases and tried to change and shift the, their translations. And so you do have to be careful what translations that you use. You even have to be careful what sources of text are used. It's very important for that. But as we look back to this, we recognize that in the original languages, when God moved these men, they were without error. They were without error. In a few moments, we'll come back to the question of preservation. But just in the moment, in dealing with the inerrancy of Scripture and the inspiration of Scripture, God inspired word by word and they are without error, which is, again, the reason why it is our sole authority for personal faith and conduct. We believe the Bible, containing the Old and New Testaments, to be the verbally inspired Word of God, inerrant in its original languages, and that it is the sole authority for personal faith and conduct. We believe the Bible containing the Old and New Testaments. The Bible is in two parts. First is the Old Testament, and second is the New Testament. The Old Testament with 39 books, the New Testament with 27 books. 
And we accept this as the canon of Scripture. Canon of Scripture simply refers to the collection of what we believe is the inspired Word of God. Now, naturally, the question arises, how do we know that it's these 66? Well, we could spend a long lecture or two or three or an entire, uh, entire course on the canonicity of Scripture and understanding the basis of it. But what we find basically is, is that in the providence of God, that is when God oversees and orchestrates events, He has preserved His Word. And from the very beginning of, of, of when Scripture had been inspired, it was recognized both by those who wrote it as well as by those in their contemporaries and subsequently continued as inspired Scripture. This was true. You will find that in these 66 books that they presume themselves or even state themselves to be the very inspired Word of God and have been accepted in that time. Now, there are many people today, it seems to become more and more of a fad, and I'm not sure if it's a fad now or if it's just something that I didn't pay attention to in the past and it's always been there, but you hear a lot about... Um, about, well, there were a bunch of guys that got together, and because they didn't like certain doctrines, um, they, they rejected certain writings. And so we've limited this to 66 books because that's just man's opinion. I don't know, you maybe ever heard that? Um, I've met well, just a few who've personally held that position. It's actually the people I personally, I, I struggle to cast the entire world of people by the few that I've known who hold those opinions because typically those people are very proud people who themselves also oftentimes act and want to proclaim they are introducing new revelation. And so that's a troubling problem. But there's another aspect of it where there's a marketing game. And so I'm going to encourage you to beware of something. Beware when you hear about the lost books of the Bible. That's a marketing game, and it's also a manipulative game to lead you astray. Um, over the years, I've been to garage sales, and I've been to Goodwill, and I find different things, like um, the lost books of the Bible and the forgotten books of Eden. And, um, oh, look, the Gospel of Mary Magdalene, and the lost Q gospel, and the lost book. See, they're all, they're all focusing on this. Now, I've done nothing more than peruse these because they're not of a lot of value. Why? Well, there's another one that actually does have a little bit more significance, and you've maybe heard of it. It's called the Apocrypha. In fact, even some um, Bibles will have the Apocrypha in the Bibles between the Old and the New Testament. And actually, some gainsayers have said, ah, see, you Christians, you guys can't even decide what books are the books of the Bible. Well, that's kind of interesting because that's not actually true. Do you know what the word apocrypha actually means? So in certain Bibles, this is in between the Old and the New Testament, and in those Bibles, they call it the apocrypha. The word apocrypha means of doubtful origins. So even in those books that include this in the book, the section is called of doubtful origins, which is kind of interesting. And that's been true all through the time. One of the biggest evidences in dealings with the canonicity of Scripture in understanding, especially anything pre-Jesus Christ, is that in the day of Jesus Christ, the Old Testament canon had been settled, those books of the Old Testament. 
And Jesus affirmed them. Actually, repeatedly affirmed them as the word of God. And in that day, they had rejected many that they now call lost. And the truth is, they've never been lost. They've just always never been accepted as Scripture. And one of the key ways of knowing that they're not Scripture and being able to discern that they're not Scripture is if there are contradictions. And so there are doctrines that have been recorded for us, teachings of Jesus, and doctrine that has come from people and sources of which we know were inspired, such as Jeremiah, where we well, we know all of our 66 books are, but so we have that, and so we have that core of doctrine. And so then we find this book, some of the books in the Apocrypha, and their doctrine is contradictory. Point blank red flag. Any doctrine that is contradictory to the Scripture isn't Scripture. And in fact, even in the teachings or the preachings, anything I say, well, I say a lot of man's words that isn't inspired. I'm not inspired. Only when anything is inspired that comes out of my mouth is when I'm reading the Word of God. And, and so you, everything is filtered by the question of what does the Word of God say, and if it contradicts it, then it's not a part of the Word of God. This is the reason why we accept the Old Testament and the New Testament in the 27 New Testament and the 39 Old Testament books as the canon, the Word of God of God. So we believe the Bible containing the Old and the New Testaments to be the verbally inspired Word of God, inerrant in its original languages, and that it is the sole authority for personal faith and conduct. Would you take your study guide and Turn over to page 4, where at the heading it says, Bibliology, the Doctrine of the Bible. I'd like to just summarize some more expanded parts of this doctrine. So what you've seen here in our church's statement of faith is a very basic declaration of what we believe as a church. Let me ask you this question. Don't answer out loud, but answer it truly in your mind and from your heart, do you believe that the book, the Bible, you hold in your hand is the verbally inspired Word of God? Do you believe that it's inerrant, without errors? Do you believe, and is it for you, your sole authority, wherein all other authorities are subject to this authority? That is what we believe as a church. But I plead with you and earnestly ask you, is that what you believe in your heart? It will change your life. You'll read the news differently. You'll read books differently. You'll live differently. You'll be different from the world around you. You won't be able to sit through your college courses or even your high school courses without processing through. For all around us, we are bombarded with human opinions, human philosophies. Some have thought of the Bible as a good book of a culmination of human wisdom. No, it's not. It is the very Word of God. 
And when you find other works of accumulated human wisdom, it must always, always, always be filtered through this book, God's Word. Always. I found a lot of different interesting things out there in the world, you know? You ever heard of the book, Rights of Man? This book needs filtered through the Word of God. This book has had a major influence in certain parts of European thought and philosophy. This book contributed to the negative aspects of the French Revolution. I don't have some books that I'd like to talk about because I, I know from other sources that they're not worthy of having, of where men or groups of men have compiled and put together things in which when compared to the Scriptures, we absolutely assuredly reject. And it's difficult sometimes. I'll give you an illustration of one thing that's very intriguing. You ever heard of a great philosopher called Confucius? You know, this guy has a lot of wonderful, incredible, and true things to say. At the same time, he has a lot of incredibly false things to say. And so, you know, we look at this, and sometimes people have thought, and in fact, I'm actually convinced that this guy had perhaps some links back to the whole, whole the, to the scriptures, because it's amazing how he's actually paralleled things. But there's also a sense in which truth is truth. It's filtered. It's filtered. It's an interesting read. And actually, there's a lot of truth that Confucius teaches. But what's so disappointing is, is that in the end, there is no hope of it. There is no hope, as we have in the very word of God, that he has inspired and given to us. So do you believe the Bible? Do you believe the Bible is inspired? Do you believe the Bible is the, your sole authority where everything comes back to what this book says? I hope so. I pray so. I encourage you that if not, that you turn to God and seek him and spend time in this book to see that it will authenticate itself. And as you trust God, trust his word, and obey. Bringing you back here to the notes, bibliology, which is a fancy word to say the doctrine of the Bible, you'll see some different headings that are subtopics in relating to the Holy Bible, God's word. We've looked here at the concept of the inspiration of God and a little bit of the inerrancy of Scripture. Another word that is important in all of this is, is not only the, the word verbal, but as time has gone by, we've also added the word plenary, as you'll see in the first paragraph there under the in word inspiration. And, and this is to say not just is it word by word, but it's every word is inspired, God-breathed. We see that the scriptures are inerrant and infallible, which means that they are without error and they are infallible in that they will not lead us astray. They will not lead you astray. So as it is your sole authority, you can know and believe that you will not be led astray. It's also very important to understand that the Bible is true 
that we be careful when we sort through different things that come up in, in our world, especially in the aspect of inerrancy. Why is inerrancy such a big thing? Why do we use the word inerrancy in our statements? Well, the reason is, is because some people in the past have come along and said, ah, yes, we believe that the Bible is the inspired word of God and that it is infallible in so much that it speaks to spiritual religious matters. Do you all agree with that? Yes, you do. He's shaking his head. No, I do too. Is it infallible in all spiritual matters? Yes, we believe that. So what's wrong with it? Well, the problem is, is that the reason why they're making the statement that it deals with only spiritual and religious matters is that they are implying by not speaking. Thank you, brother, for the feedback. I don't mean to call you out. I, I love that feedback. Please, more people shake your heads. It helps me know. Um, it, it, it helps us. Um, they imply by saying that it is only infallible in religious and spiritual matters that it is not then infallible or inerrant in matters of history, in matters of science, in all matters. The truth is, is that the scriptures are inerrant and infallible in its entirety and in every realm of human existence, of natural science, in every, every, every realm. It is accurate. It is inerrant. And this is a big deal because you will read in your Bible over and over miracles. When we're children, we love miracles. And sometimes when we grow up, we have trouble with miracles. I think we all need to be like children when it comes to miracles. But what's intriguing about it is, is that when the scriptures declare a miracle, do we believe it? Or do we try to rationalize it away? So for example, the scriptures speak of Jonah being in the belly of the fish, the great fish, for three days and three nights. So is that some fanciful fairy tale fable? It maybe sounds like a fable you might have read in Aesop's, right? But it's in the Word of God. And it's presented as real history. How do we know it was real history? Well, one is, is that it's presented to us as real history. But there's actually another really significant reason we know it's history. Jesus treated it as history. In fact, some of the most dramatic and spectacular miracles in the Bible, Jesus himself affirmed their, historic, their historicity and their accuracy. In fact, he even used miracles as the foundational background to make a profound spiritual truth. Or in the case of Jonah an actual prophecy upon which your very salvation hinges, the resurrection of himself from the dead. The very resurrection, oh, that's a miracle too. Here you see why it is so important for us to approach the scriptures and to understand that they are inerrant and that they are infallible. 
Another aspect of understanding the Scriptures is the preservation of the Scriptures. The Bible over and over and over declares to us that it is eternal. In Matthew 24, 35, Jesus said, Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. In 1 Peter, it says that the word of the Lord endureth forever. And considering the fact that the word of the Lord endures forever, Peter makes this statement, and this is the word by which the gospel is preached, upon, preached unto you. You see, the preservation and the eternality of the word of God and its permanency is a vital key truth upon which the gospel of salvation is proclaimed. When God speaks, it shall be so. It shall be preserved. In Isaiah and in 1 Peter, 1 Peter then quotes it. It says that the grass withereth and the flower falls away. But the word of the Lord, it endures forever. In Psalms, the word of God is referred to as a covenant, which, by the way, is another word for testament. And it says there that he remembers his covenant forever. His word is true. And the word which he commanded for a thousand generations doesn't mean that it just is for a thousand generations, but it is forever and we can't fathom even a thousand generations. God's word will last forever. And an aspect in a related part to the preservation of Scripture is another topic that, again, we could have an entire course on, and that is what is called higher criticism or textual criticism, which is to understand to look through all of the collection of manuscripts that we have throughout time and to understand and to put together critically that we have a reliable and most accurate um, compiled copy of God's Word. I have here some Greek New Testaments and Hebrew Old Testament. The, the Hebrew Old Testament has been settled again, was settled in the time of Jesus. And um, copies that have been preserved are, are amazing um, of all different details of ancient literature compared of both the Old Testament and the New Testament. The minuteness of details that are different and varied is so tiny, it's, it's mind-blowing to the scientific minds who study this. It is absolutely spectacular. In fact, it is, both, it is a profound evidence of the providence of God in preserving His Word. Now, there's also some major concerns with the idea of higher criticism. Higher criticism technically simply means that we want to approach what we have and be very critical that we have what is accurate. And many olden day um, higher critical scholars were, were those who, that was their goal. In fact, what we refer to as the textus receptus or the received text, the, those who helped to compile that together into a bound book um, were, were very specific in being critical that what they were doing was accurate and reliable and was taking into consideration what they had. But as time has gone by, some in that, some in that world have, have kind of changed their philosophy, not, not being critical to be sure that we have the very word of God that's been preserved providentially through the ages, but to seek to try to undermine the scriptures. And that philosophy of higher criticism is very dangerous and is something that we must reject. 
And some people have asked, upon why? What scriptural evidence is there for us to be careful? I'll give you an illustration of something that occurs in many uh, modern translations. It's in a part of what is commonly referred to as the critical text of the modern time. And there are different critical texts. But one of the struggles is, is you'll, you'll hear this statement, that the, most, the oldest and best manuscripts omit this or change it in this way. Now, there's a struggle with that, biblically speaking. And I need to show you this from your Bible because this is a common question that comes up. Take your Bibles and turn with me to Isaiah 59. To somehow to think or to argue that recently discovered manuscripts are of higher authority than manuscripts which have been providentially preserved throughout history, the idea that these recently discovered that are probably and actually older are superior in authority is problematic. Why? And instead of it just being my opinion, let me share with you the last verse of Isaiah 59. Here is a principle of God's word. As for me, God says, this is my covenant with them, saith the Lord. My spirit that is upon thee and my words which I have put in thy mouth shall not depart out of thy mouth. There we see a declaration and statement of inspiration. We also see a declaration and statement of early preservation in the life of the prophet. Nor out of the mouth of thy seed, his descendants, nor out of the mouth of thy seed's seed, the next generation, him, the next generation, the next generation. So, he says, my words which I have put in thy mouth shall not depart out of thy mouth, nor out of the mouth of thy seed, nor out of the mouth of thy seed's seed, saith the Lord, and look at this, from henceforth and forever. Here is what is significant is, is that when God, at the point of revelation, revealed and inspired his word, he has preserved it from that point, from generation to generation to generation, henceforth, forevermore. This is one of the fallacies of the, any higher criticism philosophy that somehow would imply or infer that there have been generations previously who have not had an accurate, preserved scripture. This is a key position in understanding higher criticism. So therefore, when you read in those margins that the oldest and best manuscripts are superior to what we've had from generation to generation to generation, red flag, red flag, because God has preserved his word from seed to seed, henceforth, forevermore. Every generation has had in their generation the preserved word of God. Hence is the reason why it is important that we be skeptical, and I don't think any of you are in the Bible translation work 
or in the um, higher criticism work. Maybe some of you might grow up to be Greek scholars and do that work. Um, we need Bible believers who believe in the verbally um, plenary inspired scriptures to be working in those realms and in those fields. But when you experience those things, recognize and understand that this is the sole authority. And it's its sole authority upon itself as well. And so when modern translations come, depending on what they're based upon, we need to be careful. And there's not a lot of them. In modern times, you have the King James Version based upon this text of a modern translation, as well as the New King James, and as well as a few other miscellaneous, typically obscure translations that are based upon what is referred to as the received text. And the idea of received text or majority text is that it's what has been received from generation to generation, that body of that text. And so that's an important piece of the aspect of the preservation of the scriptures and dealing also with the, the, uh, the, what, is, what is the textual criticism aspect. There's another topic we're out of time in dealing with translation issues, um, philosophies of translations and significance. Um, there's a lot of things there that are important. I'd like to continue on here though in just looking at the next topic the next two topics briefly, and that is the inspiration of the scriptures. I'm sorry, not the inspiration of the scriptures. We settled the inspiration of the scriptures, I hope, right? The interpretation of scriptures. Here is a big, important issue. There are many people who will say, just as our statement of faith says, we believe the Bible to be the inspired, plenary, verbal word of God, to be inerrant and infallible. But it doesn't mean what you think it means. And so it is very important for us that as we're looking to the Scriptures that we are not taking our own philosophies and opinions and culture and imposing them upon these words, but rather letting these words speak for themselves. It's a, it's a study that's referred to as hermeneutics. It's the studying of the Bible, the interpreting of of the Bible, and it is very important as that we interpret the Bible according to its grammatical, that means understanding its grammatical structure as it is, and its historical, meaning understanding it in the history that it was inspired and written, to understand it in that meaning and under the guidance of the Holy Spirit interpreting it, and under the guidance of the Holy Spirit applying it to a modern world which is quite a bit different, but quite a bit the same as ancient cultures. And so it's very important that we're interpreting it in a historical, grammatical way that is done in a normal way, which means that it's done literally, considering that there are also uh, parables, there are figures of speech, there's analogies that are in play, and recognizing that's a natural part of a literal interpretation. And it's really important for us to approach the Scriptures like this. Um, people have taken certain, certain historical accounts in the Scriptures, and they create magnificent, fanciful analogies of them in trying to present spiritual truth. And they've undermined the historicity and the authority of the Scriptures by doing so. And so it is very important for us, not only that we believe that the Bible is the Word of God inspired by Him, but that we approach this with such respect that when we interpret it, we are interpreting it 
correctly. And one of the most profound and important principles of interpretation is to recognize that this book is the result of several thousand years. Well, actually, it's not quite even that. 2,000 years of revelation. Meaning that Genesis or Job, we could debate which came first, um, was inspired way back, way back in, the, in 1400 B.C., that era. And then concluded with the book of Revelation of approximately 90 A.D., 80-90. And so we have this, and it's called progressive revelation. It means that God has revealed himself more and more, little by little, throughout a period of history. And what's really important to understand in that truth is that we also see how God has worked with his people throughout that time. We have a course in our school of theology called God and Revelation. It's not a course that's about God and the book of Revelation. It is a course that is about God and how he has revealed himself. And when we see how he's revealed himself throughout the ages, and it's been progressive, there was some truth that was revealed specifically, especially in the days of Abraham to Abram, Abram and Abraham, and then it, it continued and, and it built upon more till we have the complete in AD 90. And when we're interpreting the scripture, it's important for us to understand at what point and when and who was the audience and why was the scripture revealed in that time. It helps us in interpreting it and understanding it. There are ways that we understand the Old Testament that are different than how we understand the New Testament because the New Testament builds upon the Old Testament. In fact, the New Testament is a fulfillment of the Old Testament. And so we have to be very careful in our interpretation of the Scriptures. And also, the question of apologetics. The word apologetics means the defense. How do we defend this book? Do, do we defend this book? Well, in 1 Peter, it tells us that we are always, we're to sanctify the Lord God in our hearts and be all re always ready to apologize, to give a defense for this book. And we're to do that with meekness and fear. We're to be ready. So how do we give apology? Does that mean we go become archaeologists and experts in studying ancient history? to be able to prove the historicity of this Bible? Does this mean that we seek to become the best of the scientists, to be able to scientifically prove um, the science that's dealt with in this book? Well, maybe, but not for the goal of proving it. For this book self-authenticates. Hebrews 4 tells, says that the word of God is living. It's alive. It's powerful. It is sharper than any two-edged sword. It will pierce to the dividing asunder of your soul and spirit. Even that part of our immaterial person, of who we are on the inside, soul and spirit, what's the difference? Where do they blend? What's the cross? The Word of God knows the difference and is able to pinpoint exactly where it needs to pinpoint in individuals' lives. And so in seeking to defend this, it's oftentimes not about finding evidences, but of searching the Scriptures. The issue is not about evidences, but what some have said, exposition. Bringing out what is in here. For this will authenticate itself. And we will see that it's not our position to prove it, 
But when, the true individual, when an individual truly seeks to discern its accuracy, the Holy Spirit of God will be the one who does it through itself. We call this presuppositional apologetics. And this doesn't mean that we don't have evidences. Oh, I love to read about archaeological finds. I love to read about how the Bible has proven scientific points and actually taught scientific truths long before scientists ever discovered them. It's incredible and fascinating. Although the Bible is not a scientific textbook, nor is it even necessarily, could you say, a historic history textbook. But this book is authenticating of itself. And it's very important for us to approach it in that way, as we also do rejoice in evidences. In fact, we're going to have a course here this fall that starts on Wednesday night. It's called Christian Evidences and Apologetics. And it's where we talk about the philosophy of apologetics, as well as the evidences and how we properly should use them in defending or in giving an apology for the Scriptures. There is a lot we have just covered. I feel that it's a struggle in this, and that's one reason why I, I haven't given here a list of further study research resources that are there, but don't let these further resources and studies neglect, cause you to neglect this book. Come back to this book. In fact, before you launch into any of these other suggested, I beg, with you, I beg you to look up every scripture reference that's referred to in this doctrinal statement. And you'll actually be surprised. In my complete doctrinal statement of 17 pages, if you take every scripture that's referred to in that and print it, it will take over 100 pages, eight and a half by 11. I have a copy of it. I've taken every scripture in my doctrinal statement and printed it together. It is, it, every statement in that is tied to this book, this worksheet I've given to you. Please take it home and do it. Please do it. But let me tell you something. Many of you are going to be able to look at that worksheet and you're going to know the answer. You'll be tempted to just write in the answer. Please take your Bible, open it up, and read the Scripture. That's the whole point of the worksheet. I don't, I don't care if you fill in the blanks. I want you to open the Scriptures and to grapple with the living Word of God. Now, you might as well fill in the blanks while you're at it, but this is the focus. This is the focus. And I plead with you to take that time to do so. We have only scratched the surface, and we could go far deeper, far more into, um, into this topic. But this is just a high-level overview. And next Sunday, we're going to take this morning service time to take what we've taken here in doctrine, teaching, the teaching and doctrine, the truths about the Word of God. And we're going to take very practical family living life and ask the question, how does this book as the sole authority, how does this book as the inspired Word of God make a difference in my home, in my family, in my job? Because doctrine that is dead isn't really believed. And so if we profess to believe, then that means we will walk in faith, which means that this book will make a difference in our lives. Great God, we seek you today knowing that you are good, knowing that you are great. 
and so privileged we are to hold in our hands your words, your truth. I pray that it would make a difference in our lives, that we would be a people changed, that we would truly believe what you have said, and that as we live today, tomorrow, this week, your Holy Spirit would bring your living word to reality, beginning in our hearts, continuing in our minds, and flowing forth in our actions and in our deeds. May you be glorified in your life. May you glorify yourself through your word, your word which you have exalted above your name. How sacred it is to you. May it be sacred to us. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that the word reveals what you have done for us and giving your life as we consider the truth, the reality of these words. We are again reminded of the truth and reality of our great salvation through you. And we humbly give thanks and praise you for you are good. We commit ourselves to you as we pray in your name.